and go from there. Usually takes about 15 seconds. There's usually a little bit of a lag on some of the different video medias that stream this, so I'll give it a minute. But yeah, that'll work. Okay, hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs, and uh, tonight we, well, I guess this afternoon, we are uh, going to be a guest on Russ LaFlower's show. I uh, hope I'm pronouncing his last name right, but uh, he has a podcast that's called The Berean Dialogues. I encourage you to go check that out, but we're going to be talking about soteriology, so stay with us for just a minute. We'll, we'll jump back into it. Sorry, man. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them. And they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Okay, so yeah, let me, uh, I'm going to cut back here, put this for my particular podcast. I'm going to put this onto the interview scene so you can see my video and hear the interaction between myself and Russ. And uh, I'm going to just follow Russ's lead because I'm on his podcast. But he, uh, he said that we could, we could stream it on ours as well. So anyways, Russ, I'll turn it over to you and follow your lead, man. Thank you. It's good to be on. Yeah, so... Um, well, my name is Josh Gibbs. I am a husband. I'm a dad of two twins, two three-year-olds, a boy and a girl. And, uh, um, well, kind of a long story short, not anybody real special, just, uh, um, just a guy who loves the Lord, studies the Bible, reads a lot of books um, and commentaries, and, and uh, just studies it as, as much as I can. It's a passion of mine. And uh, I, I really enjoy dialogue with other people. I've been involved in homeless ministries um, um, out on the streets of Kansas City and the City Union Mission and other uh, kind of homeless um, missions in downtown Kansas City as well as uh, nursing home ministries and um, just basically uh, teaching different classes on, on different topics. I was also a youth pastor um, for a short while, and have, have been in the home remodeling business for about um, eight or nine years, and just in the last year and a half, I'm now working and excavating for my father-in-law, and um, long story short, now I, I have got a podcast of my own, 
which is called Talking Christianity Apologetics. And it, it kind of just started out as a sermon prep type deal and uh, turned into uh, what it is now, where we talk a lot about soteriology, we talk a lot about uh, textual criticism, and um, uh, just some different subjects like that. But um, primarily those are the areas that we focus on is, is the text and soteriology. So it's kind of a passion of mine. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so um, when you and I uh, had talked previously, we were trying to figure out what, what we could talk about, and you had asked kind of what my passion is, and, and uh, being that soteriology is something that we spend a pretty decent amount of time on, uh, you were kind of feeling out where, where I stood on soteriology, and I think free grace theology is probably the best, um, definite kind of the best category to put myself in. Um, so to start with the definition, I think that I'll define what it is. I'll give a de definitive verse on the subject, and then I'll take you through some of the core beliefs of what uh, free grace theology would be. So the the definition is is a Christian soteriolo soteriological view teaching that everyone receives eternal life the moment they believe in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. Lord would refer to the belief that Jesus is the Son of God, and therefore he's able to be their Savior. The view distinguishes between, one, the call to believe in Christ as Savior and to receive the gift of eternal life, and then, number two, the call to follow Christ and become obedient disciples. So really, we're, we draw a strong distinction between uh, between justification and sanctification. We'll talk more about that as we go. But uh, free grace theology, really, it's it's distinguished by its soteriology, which would be, as we had previously, previously mentioned, the, the, the doctrine of salvation. So advocates for free grace theology um, believe that God justifies the sinner on the sole condition of faith in Christ as opposed to faith in Christ and righteous living or faith in Christ and baptism, faith in Christ and... Uh, the sacraments, we, it's solely faith in Christ. That's what we believe uh, brings salvation to any individual. So that definition of faith involves belief, trust, and conviction that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Uh, faith being convinced that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God to which one must call upon to save on the basis of accepting Jesus as your personal Savior. And we believe it's a very personal position. Good works don't play a role in being delivered from hell. So in other words, Jesus would graciously provide eternal salvation as a free gift to all, and it's received by those who believe in him. Although salvation is commonly used to refer to justification, free grace advocates point out that believers can experience salvation in a, in a number of ways uh, based off of the biblical usage of the term salvation. So it could either be physical or spiritual in, in different senses. Um, such as deliverance. Salvation, it means deliverance. It's not a technical term that simply means go to heaven as, as many people understand it and use and use the term. Um, but as demonstrated in Acts 27, 34, uh, where the Greek word soteria, typically translated as salvation, is translated health or strength because Food will assist their deliverance from physical death. So spiritual salvation, it can either refer to deliverance from an eternal penalty of sin, which would be justification. It, it, we would also look at, at the current 
power of sin over the Christian, which is sanctification, and then uh, the removal of any possibility to sin ultimately is glorification with the glorification of the body and being restored to uh, a stewardship over the world as God intended for humankind at creation, which would be restoration to rule. So there's different aspects of it, um, but we, we basically take the stance that faith alone um, is, is what puts a person into Christ. So let's look at a definitive verse on it. Um, I believe that uh, for any given topic of, of study within the Bible, there's there's what we would call a definitive verse for uh, free grace theology. I think the definitive verse is going to be Romans 5.15, which says, uh, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. So you see there's a, a free free gift, and you see that that gift is by grace. So we would say this is a free grace uh, gift, if, if you want to word it that way. But um, So we've, we've kind of give it, given a definition. We've given a definitive verse on it. Uh, if you want to, I could take a second and talk about some of the core beliefs of free grace theology. Um, okay, yeah. So uh, the first core belief we, we've already discussed is faith alone. The explanation for this is that God declares a person righteous by faith in Christ, which is uh, when one would have the imputed righteousness of Christ to that individual. We believe this is regardless of works accompanying faith either before or after. We see in John 3 verses 14 through 17, uh, it compares believing in Jesus to the Israelites looking upon the bronze servant in the wilderness from healing uh, from deadly venom. And you see that in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21. Uh, but but they didn't have to do anything. Um, it, it said, look and live, you know, look and live. You look on the bronze servant and you'll, and you'll live. Um, but but the key element behind that is, is someone who was to look on that serpent and live uh, had, had to have faith that looking to that serpent would allow them to live. And we see that that's uh, what we call a typology of the Lord Jesus Christ on on the cross, where where we look to Christ and we live. There's nothing more involved in it, uh, and nothing more to it. So we also believe in free choice. Uh, this is this is a key element for free grace theology. Give me just a second. I've got <clears throat> I've got a frog in my throat. I got to clear it real quick. All right. So hopefully you guys didn't hear that. But anyway, so free choice. Justifying faith, it's not an irresistible gift of God. It's a human response to God's love. And I, I think this is where, where immediately some ears are going to perk up. You're going to know that that's a reference to Calvinism. This is where free grace theology has a very strong distinction between uh, itself and Calvinism. But um, sanctifying faith also involves a choice. Humanity retains a free will capable of both belief or unbelief when God lovingly woos and invites that individual. And we believe that God woos and invites every individual who's ever come into the world. So people would choose whether or not to obey, and the resulting consequences would be sanctification, the reward or a defilement and punishment, which are due to their choices. The principle that we reap what we sow applies to all humanity because all humans have a God-given gift of making choices. This is what we would call uh, free will. And uh, we believe that it has not changed since the garden. I think that every sat soteriological 
uh, point of view is going to take the position that Adam and Eve did in fact have free will to choose between uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and uh, the, the tree of life. So um, we believe those two choices have been set before every individual following Adam and Eve. And uh, th that would be your soteriological choice between Christ and, uh, and, and the other choice of rejecting Christ. So now the next, the next key point would be relationship actually differs from intimacy. So let's take a second to talk about this. A permanent relationship with God as Father and the believer as a child begins by faith alone. When someone believes there is a new birth and the spiritual birth cannot be undone. Now, however, the familial relationship does not guarantee fellowship. Intimacy with God requires obedience. So we would draw a distinction between fellowship and uh, uh, your your state in Christ. So your standing. It's, it's kind of a standing versus state argument if, if you've heard that. Um, but there, there, there would be your distinction between a relationship and uh, fellowship. So, kind of, if you were to apply that to a, a parent with their child, um, you, you're always going to have a relationship that this that, that your child is is always going to be your child. But it doesn't mean that you're always going to be in fellowship. So it is with uh, the relationship of God the Father to His children. You're always going to have that familial relationship as father and son. Uh, but you may not always be in fellowship. And, and um, um, so that's where that conversation goes. But the next core belief is going to be justification differing from sanctification. Uh, real briefly, justification before God is a free, unconditional gift by faith alone, but sanctification requires obedience to God. Sanctification of all Christians is not guaranteed, which only the final glorification of all Christians to a sinless state is guaranteed, which we would say is is a reference to Romans 8, verse 30, Philippians 2, 12, and a few other verses as well on that context. But the next key category is going to be eternal security, and then we got two more um, to talk about, and I'll, I'll turn it over to you from there. But uh, eternal security would say that once a person has believed in Jesus as God and Savior, that person spends eternity with God regardless of subsequent behavior. God's eternal acceptance is unconditionally given. Belonging to God's family is a permanent and irrevocable gift based off of Romans 11.29. But then you've got assurance of salvation, which is, is confidence of spending eternity with God, which it would be possible for every Christian since God justifies through faith alone and provides eternal security. And finally, you've got the rewards and discipline. This is where all Christians will absolutely undergo judgment by Christ based upon their works and degree of conformity to Christ's character or lack thereof. Now, this is called what we commonly call, and you may, you may hear it in, in one of two terms, either the judgment seat of Christ or the bema seat, uh, where Christians are rewarded based off their obedience to God through faith. Now, this judgment, it doesn't concern heaven or hell, but it concerns rewards, payment for service, or temporary punishment. So God's familial acceptance of his children is unconditionally given. However, his payments of eternal honor, riches, and positions of authority are given uh, for children who obediently serve God. So good parents would discipline their children and will not approve of behavior that is, is detrimental, but neither will God approve sinful behavior that leads to destructive consequences. And you can see that in uh, the great chapter in Hebrews chapter 12 on the chastisement of, of God to his, his children. So that, that would kind of wrap up uh, 
that portion of the conversation with uh, defining what free grace theology is. I don't know if that's more than what you were looking for, but yeah. Yeah, there is, and, and there's just so many categories and subcategories that you can break down, and this uh, that conversation j- can just go on and on, and uh, rightly so. It does, man. I was having a conversation with a guy the other day, and uh, I asked him, I said, um, so how important is theology to you? And he said, well, you know, theology isn't as important to me as as uh, a practical application of just right living for Christianity. And I got to thinking about that. And and to me, I think that your theology actually drives that. I think theology drives how you live as a Christian. I think theology drives the pastoral advice that a pastor would give to his sheep. I th- it just drives so many aspects. And it, and it goes into the, even the conversation that you had last week uh, with Kent Hoven. Your, eschato- your eschatological views, I think it, it, it drives that even. So, anyways, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I was, um, the, the whole reason that I have spent so much time studying soteriology is years ago, um, I had a conversation with a, a Calvinist, and, uh, you know, I thought I knew, uh, I thought I knew uh, more about Calvinism than I actually did, um, and he challenged me in a lot of ways, and it really got me to uh, thinking um, in the conversation of particular redemption, limited atonement, uh, prevenient grace, uh, common grace, all of these different categories and subcategories of salvation um, as it relates to the foreknowledge and predestination of God to individuals to either be saved or not saved. And, and that conversation just gets so deep, and I, th- I think that it, it, it really can be bogged down and, and, and overcomplicated when it's, it really doesn't need to be that complicated. But that's the depth of the Bible, man. I think that that's the beauty of it as well as as it can be so simple and so complex at the same time, and that can lead us to having a conversation about salvation 2,000 years after the cross. So that's why it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, this is uh, the conversation of Calvinism and Calvin, I think, has gone be beyond um, beyond what Calvin would have believed in <laughs> when when he kind of came up with his soteriological viewpoint with Calvinism. And even I just saw a post today from a, a reformed fellow um, who's who's just ragging on um, the new Calvinism. And he says that it's not Calvinism. And, and I think that Calvin would even say that Calvinism today is not Calvinism. If, if you've ever read Calvin's commentary on Isaiah 53, you would know that he did not believe in a, uh, a limited atonement per se. Um, in, in fact, he says that, uh, that the atonement of Christ in Isaiah 53 was absolutely for every individual um, on the planet. So... Um, I, I think that when you when you get into the conversation of, of Calvinism and what Calvin believed 
then versus what Calvinism has become today. It really changed uh, at, at the Synod of Dort, uh, but that's kind of a, a whole nother conversation. So let's talk a little bit about free grace theology and lordship salvation. I was looking on gracelife.org and uh, in a 2018 dissertation uh, advocating for lordship salvation, it says this. Um, so you'll get it from a Calvinistic source defining what lordship salvation is, as opposed to me, where I don't adhere to it. So um, you can just hear it straight from them. But uh, this is what it says. It says, the doctrine of lordship salvation teaches that submitting to Christ as Lord goes hand in hand with trusting in Christ as Savior. Lordship salvation is the opposite of what is sometimes called easy believism, or the teaching that salvation comes through an acknowledgement of a certain set of facts. And there's a lot of distinctions to be made there, but let's just continue with the conversation, and uh, we'll go from there. Here's another website that's critical of that view, and uh, it defines it similarly. However, it says this, as defined by its own advocates, lordship salvation could more properly be called commitment salvation, surrender salvation, slaveship salvation, servant si <laughs> servantship salvation, or submission salvation. Since in actuality, the debate is not over the lordship of Christ, but the response of a person to the gospel and the conditions which must be met for salvation. So you see two kind of advocating um, interpretations of what lordship salvation is there. And I would agree with the latter part of that because, in my opinion, lordship salvation gets dangerously close to work salvation. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as, as we go here. But listen to what Charles Ryrie says in Basic Theology. Uh, he says, The lordship teaching fails to distinguish salvation from discipleship and makes requirements for discipleship prerequisites for salvation. He goes on, he says, Our Lord distinguished the two in Luke 14, 16 through 33. This teaching elevates one of the many aspects of the person of Christ uh, which would be the master over life and making it a part of the gospel. He goes on, he says, Why not require faith in his kingship, or in fact that he is judge of all, or that he was creator? Though my view has been dubbed easy believism, it is not easy to believe because what we ask the unsaved person to believe in is not easy. We ask that he trust a person who lived 2,000 years ago, whom he can only know through the Bible, to forgive his sins. We're asking that that he stake his eternal destiny on this. Remember, the example of evangelist Jesus, he did not require the Samaritan woman to set her sinful life in order or even be willing to so that she could be saved. He did not set out before her what would be expected by way of changes in her life if she believed. He simply said she needed to know who he is and to ask for the gift of eternal life. That's Charles Ryrie. Now, the Grace School of Theology, in their doctrinal statement, says this about lordship salvation. He says, We believe that God saves by grace alone, apart from works, whether past or future. Those who put their faith in Christ alone as God and Savior from sin, initial faith resulting in justification and regeneration is not a gift of God. That is, fallen humanity, when persuaded by the illuminating and convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, and the drawing ministry of the Father still possesses the capacity to believe in Christ. Such faith precedes regeneration. At the moment of belief, Christ imputes his righteousness to all believers and keeps them secure eternally. Based on the promises of God, not works, we believe a person can and should have 
complete assurance of his or her eternal life the moment he or she, she believes in Christ. So I think there's a, a, a strong distinction being made here. Let's, let's go on to George H. Lang in his book, Revelation. The water of life is not acquired by the process of fighting a lifelong battle and conquering at last. It is a free gift imparting spiritual life to the spiritually dead. I think that for those of you who are listening, you can see the, the distinction that I'm making that these other fellows are making as well between justification and sanctification, where lordship salvation uh, would place sanctification and justification as equal uh, within the role of salvation. So, Now, Charles Bing, in, in his work on lordship salvation, says this, Jesus is Lord of all regardless of one's submission to him. Because he is Lord, he has the power and position to save sinners. Sinners who come to him through faith implicitly or explicitly submit to his authority to save and may likewise submit to his authority in other areas of life. But since the issue in salvation is salvation, only the recognition of his authority to save is demanded for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Uh, two other quotes and then I'll wrap it up here. Manfred Kober in Lordship Salvation, uh, Forgotten Truth or a False Doctrine, says this, Being a Christian means following an invitation. Being a disciple means forsaking all. To confuse these two aspects of the Christian life is to confound the grace of God and the works of man, to ignore the difference between salvation and sanctification. Uh, the gospel of grace is scriptural. The gospel that adds the works of man to salvation is a counterfeit gospel. Now, I was talking to Jonathan Williams, who's uh, the founder of Word of God Speak Ministries, uh, I think it was last week, and we I asked him this question, you know, can you be a son of God without being a disciple at the same time? And his answer to me was, I don't know. And uh, he asked me what I thought, and I said, man, I'm still trying to figure that one out, because I think that to be a son of God is a question about salvation, but to be a disciple of God is a question about following Christ. And, uh, I mean, when you look at the Gospels, uh, the, the disciples were disciples before they were sons. Uh, that is to say, they followed Christ before they actually believed uh, on him as their Lord and personal Savior. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's something that, you know, i got to think a little bit more about. But listen to what Spurgeon says in his commentary on Romans 9 in the pulpit series, referring to lordship salvation via predestination against free will. He says, we cannot conceive of man's absolute free will, for that is a denial of the obvious fact of the weakness of his moral nature and of the, ab the, the almost overwhelming forces of habit and example. To preach predestination only is to preach fatalism and to drive the ungodly to despair or recklessness. To preach man's free will only is to deny the need of God's grace and to claim all for human merit. Extreme Calvinism makes God a capricious tyrant. Extreme Arminianism denies the corruption of human nature and makes man his own savior. So here's how I would kind of sum up the conversation. I, I think that lordship salvation as it's taught in Calvinist camps today is absolutely dangerously close to work salvation if, if it is not in fact a, in fact a works-based system. That is, I, I think that if you're a Calvinist or if you're anybody who places lordship salvation as a necessity for salvation, as in you follow Christ by your works, um, you are, you're on very, very dangerous grounds, and I would seriously consider uh, where you stand on that point. But 
The reason I say that is because Lordship Salvation definitely draws the distinction that you'll absolutely live a moral life as a Christian, submitting to Jesus, uh, his rule over your life with you as his slave. So when they look at someone to decide if they're saved, it's not enough to hear someone's confession and, and even submission to be baptized as a figure of their salvation, but to look at their works and examine their works to decide if they are saved or not. There's no assurance of salvation in Lordship Salvation because it's always an examination of your works. There's no doubt an examination of works directly in opposition to what free grace theology teaches, and I think that's, uh, that would be some of the strongest differences between free grace theology and lordship salvation there. So you just let me know if I need to cut these things a little shorter. Yeah. So, um, Ar Arminian, Arminianism today is even different than what Arminianism was as taught by, uh, I think his first name is Jacob. Was it Jacob Arminius? What was his first? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but the main difference, what, what is it? Mr. Arminius. That's what we're going to go with. So, um, so here's what I can see. I, I think the main difference uh, is that Arminian doctrine is is pretty much founded on uh, prevenient grace. So when we're we're drawing a distinction between free grace theology and Arminianism, uh, you've got prevenient grace versus free grace. So um, just to kind of talk a little bit about Arminianism and and how I just mentioned that it's not the same today as it was then. Um, I've I've got a quote um, kind of towards the end. Of, of what I'm going to talk about here that will really draw out the distinction between those two. But essentially, uh, the parallel is drawn between Arminianism and Calvinism. Uh, some folks want to uh, draw the distinction uh, so far as to say it's monergism versus synergism. I don't, I don't think that any, any uh, Arminianism would adhere to a synergistic belief. Um, I, I really don't. Um, I think that any any Arminianism would Arminian would still say that salvation is is by the grace of God and and God saves alone. Uh, but when you when you get into that conversation, it's it's what's my part, what's God's part, and that's where where people would kind of take that conversation to say that it is a synergistic perspective on uh, earning your salvation or or putting some sort of effort into um, anything apart from grace alone. So. Um, I think that um, prevenient grace teaches it teaches that God knows who will be saved in the future, which is sometimes characterized by God looking through what, what is known as the corridors of time kind of analogy. And, and so God's looking through the corridors of time to see who will believe the gospel. Then based on this knowledge of who will believe the gospel, God thereby, he gives the grace needed to those people alone to hear and believe the gospel, resulting in their particular salvation through prevenient grace, while uh, he only extends what would be called common grace to those who he sees in the future who will not believe the gospel. Uh, so the argument between Calvinists and Arminians in this regard, really, to me, I think they're both two sides of the same coin. 
One says God predestines those who he chooses to give effectual and saving grace to, arbitrarily, I might add, while the other God predestines to get prevenient grace based off of their own future action. So, uh, ultimately, you've still got a limitation of grace being given to certain people, whether it's arbitrary or whether it's God seen who would be, believe the gospel or not. Either way, um, it's, it's a very limited view on the, the salvific grace available um, to some people and not available to others. That is, uh, God only gives grace to some people to hear the gospel and believe it, um, where he doesn't give it to others. And, and that's very problematic for me. What's, what's really complicated about this, this thought process, though, is, is God seeing them saved. Is he seeing them saved because he gave them the grace needed for salvation in eternity past and saw his own work in them to get saved? Or is he seeing some sort of heart in the future uh, where for people that are able to volitionally recognize their own sinfulness and need for a Savior apart from God's work, which would cause him to give them the grace needed to believe? So, it, it's kind of a rabbit hole. It gets complicated. It's like, well, is God seeing his own work in these people to believe? Is he seeing their work to, to believe volitionally? And in that case, well, it's like, well, some people have the natural volition without God intervening to hear the gospel and believe, uh, when in reality, it, it seems that that's not reality. You've got to have uh, God working for a person to even be able to understand the gospel and believe it. So, um, that's where it gets kind of a rabbit hole in that conversation, and, and I'll just leave it at that. But in the expo Expositor's Commentary by Nickel, he writes this on prevenient grace in Psalm 21, verses 1 through 3. And I'll read these three verses and, and see how he uses this particular passage uh, to kind of define what prevenient grace is. It says, The king shall joy in, in thy strength, O Lord, and in thy salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice! You've given him his heart's desire and have not withholden the request of his lips, the law. For you prevented him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold on his head. And then he says this about those three verses. There is in theology of terms still used prevenient grace, meaning the grace which, which acts on a sinner before repentance, inducing him to repent. The grace by which he attains faith and receives power to, to will the good. But we must not limit God's prevenient grace to the act of repentance, to the steps which lead up to the consciousness of sonship with God. When we do awaken to that consciousness of will, like the psalmist, look back and see how God has been in the past leading, guiding, guarding, shepherding us, preventing, going before us with the blessings of goodness. We can point to this place and to that in our life's history where we have been kept from wrong by being kept from the opportunity. What we in blindness call hindering has been really helping. J. Cross says this, he says, Man is a creature, his creator has the unquestionable right to, his, to all he is and all he has. When the creature has done his utmost, he is still an unprofitable servant, and man is fallen and, and a guilty creature. As such, he is already in arrears with God. His perfect obedience being always due, he can never make up any deficiencies, there is no possibility of doing anything beyond our bounden duty uh, to be set down to our credit over against any records of former delinquency. Moreover, that fallen creature cannot keep the divine law without the grace of its divine author. His prevenient grace to prepare the way, his cooperative grace 
to assist the effort. Not through any worthiness of our own can we hope for absolution. So the bottom line is, the Calvinist and the Arminian believe that grace is limited to either those who Christ chooses to save arbitrarily, uh, or those Jesus sees will believe, and I believe both are wrong. So neither are good definitions of grace, which Arminians today, as I mentioned earlier, believe that you can fall from grace and, and thus you can lose your salvation. But listen to what Arminius himself says. The regenerate in point of fact never do fall away. Arminius uh, did not decide where he says, at no point, have, he says actually, at no period have I asserted that believers do finally decline or fall away from faith and salvation. And uh, like New England Calvinists, he asserted the possibility, but not the fact of a total and final defection of the elect. So <clears throat> that would kind of sum up the difference between free grace theology and Arminianism. But I, I thought about this. Um, I, I thought it might be helpful. I wanted to get your take on it. Um, it in John chapter 6 is the most common uh, passage used by both Calvinists and Arminians to, de to describe the work of God. Um, in a person's life before salvation. So I, I, I thought if you wanted to, I could take two or three minutes to, to go through that. And uh, yeah, so um, I'll give the Calvinist perspective on, on this particular passage, the Arminian perspective, and then I'll give the free grace perspective um, on John chapter 6. Let me, let me take a drink just for a second here. Okay, so I'm going to read this starting... In verse 36, he says, But I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up against again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me that everyone which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not amongst yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. As it is written in the prophets, they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that has heard and has learned of the Father comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God, he has not seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say to you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. So, that is uh, verses 36 through 47. Now, Calvinism is going to tell you, really simply, really briefly, that God only draws the elect, and therefore only the elect get eternal life. So those who God draws are those who are raised up on the last day. Arminianism says God only draws those who would have believed anyways, and they get eternal life because God sees them believing anyways, and therefore he gives them the grace needed to come, which is the drawing. So Calvinism says God draws the elect. Arminianism says God draws those who he sees would believe anyways. And uh, an alternative that I'm proposing is the free grace perspective on John chapter 6. It's all This perspe perspective says that all people, all individuals, are actually drawn of the Father. 
I don't believe that any Calvinist or Arminian has ever shown a limited drawing of the Father, and I believe that's their obligation, to show that there's only a certain person that is drawn as opposed to a certain person that is not drawn. So those who are drawn are able to come. Those who come are those who believe. Those who believe are those who are raised up on the last day. So here the limiting factor and those raised up on the last day are not those who are drawn, but those who come in response to being drawn as opposed to those who are drawn. They can come if they're drawn. Now, not all do. So this is the free grace view. Now, the Calvinist will tell you that God only raises up those who are drawn. But John chapter 6 says God only raises up those who actually come. So the Calvinist reads it and says, only those who come to the Father are drawn. And uh, the free grace theology says all are drawn. Only those who are raised up are those who come. So there's your free choice to respond or not to that drawing. So you'll hear, hear him constantly misquote John 6 and say that those who are drawn will be raised up on the last day, but that's not what it says. It says those who are raised up on the last day are those who came. So the challenge I would have to Calvinists as well as Arminians is, uh, including James White, where I've proposed this to him, show me where that drawing is limited, and I'll seriously consider your point. What I see, though, is, is that those who come or those who respond to the drawing with an emphasis on the word can come in verse 44. In verse 44, it says this, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, if you were to diagram that sentence and say, well, who's the one that's raised up on the last day? Is it those who are drawn or those who came? Well, it says that no one can come unless they're drawn. It doesn't say only those who come are those who are drawn. And uh, anyways, that would be, kind of be my point there um, to show that there is no limitation on those who are drawn. And you can see that in John chapter 12, verse 32, uh, where Jesus says, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And uh, many other passages, I think we can consistently come to the conclusion, God does not limit the drawing uh, to the so-called Calvinistic interpretation to just the elect or the Arminian interpretation to just those who are going to believe anyways. So anyways, that would kind of be my take on, on uh, Arminianism versus pre-grace theology and uh, kind of look at the practical passage in John 6. No, it's not. Yeah, it's distinct, I think. Yeah, I'm with you 100% on that. I think that... Uh, I think really what that question comes down to is a question of, of um, free will. You know, and you'll, <laughs> you'll hear people so often say that free will is not in the Bible. Sovereignty, sovereignty, you know. Uh, but what's interesting is free will is in the Bible. It shows up 17 times in the Bible. And uh, 16 times, you know, is obviously um, in reference to, to uh, sacrifice. And one time is actually coming to worship the Lord in the temple. So, um out of 17 times, even if you want to say, well, that's not dealing with soteriology, 
I, I, I really think it is. I mean, if you have a free will offering, I, I, I think you still have to acknowledge the fact that it's a free will offering. So, you know, uh, if, if you want to say it, 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 that conversation is a whole nother conversation, but, um, you know, free will actually does show up in the Bible. And uh, I, th- I think when it comes to the responding to the drawing, even in John chapter six, God is drawing the distinction that only those who are going to be raised up on the last day to the resurrection of life as opposed to the resurrection of condemnation, is going to be limited to those who, who's, who responded to the drawing in a positive way, as opposed to those who rejected the drawing of God. So I, I think when it comes down to the excuse of men, I don't think that there's going to be any excuse from any man to be able to say, God, you did not draw me. You didn't draw me. Like, how are you going to send me to hell if you didn't draw me? Like, I didn't reject anything because you didn't draw me. Like, I, I, the whole conversation is just so backwards there. I, I, I think there is a responsibility for the individual who rejects the gospel um, because they have a genuine re- ability to respond either positively or negatively to the gospel presentation, which would be the drawing of Christ. So, anyways... Yeah. So there are some things that I really like about Molinism. There's some things that I really don't like about Molinism. And one of the things that I don't like about Molinism is uh, how Molinism (laughs) relates to soteriology. So let's let's define what what Molinism is, kind of where it originated and the impact that it's had and then when it was originated and kind of where it's at now. So it's interesting. I don't believe that it's designed to be used for soteriological purposes, although if you draw it to its logical conclusions, it, it has to be. Um, so it, it, it's supposed to be used to describe the relationship of God's foreknowledge and his predestination within God's omniscience. So basically it's an answer to open theism. It's an answer to uh, um, that question that you're, you're trying to answer within the Protestant Reformation on the division between Rome the Roman Catholic Church, and the Protestants, which was primarily between Calvinists and Arminians. Um, so this guy named, um, what was his name? Luis Molina. Uh, he was in the 16th century. He was a Roman Catholic uh, Jesuit. And what he was he was trying to do was come up with a um, kind of a bridge between the Protestants and the Catholics that could bring the Protestants back to Catholicism through Molinism. And, and, and this particular thought process to say, you know what, Calvinism and Arminianism are both uh, consistent within the Catholic teaching. You can use that and still be a part of Rome. So um, some would say he was trying to use that to reform Rome from within. Uh, others would say, no, he was not trying to reform Rome. He was trying to bring the Protestants back to Rome through this teaching. And um, anyways, y- you can get pretty complicated and, and that particular side of the conversation, but let's, I'll try to keep it short with um, um, describing his beliefs, but just summarize them here, and I'll give you a simpler explanation for how it's being applied today within soteriology, and then kind of see what you think about it. But in, uh, it, it, it was, while writing, he was writing a commentary on Thomas Aquinas, he was led to attempt the old Pelagian controversy by a, a, a conciliation of free will and man and the divine foreknowledge and with predestination. So he finally advocated a system 
and his De Liberi Arbitri uh, Concordia Cum Gratia Donis, <laughs> all this Latin stuff, Divina, Divine, uh, Presentia, Providentia, Predestination, and Reprobation. It's all in Latin, so I'm kind of butchering that. But uh, this book, it was dedicated to the Grand Inquisition of Portugal. At, at once, it gave rise to a violent controversy. So Molina rejects the sufficiency of grace, asserting that grace is sometimes sufficient, sometimes insufficient, according as the will is cooperating with or resisting it. So we wouldn't really have too much of a qualm there, although I would say that grace is never insufficient. I would say that the resisting or um, I, would, I would place the insufficiency on on the resisting and cooperating portion instead of the sufficient versus inefficient. But anyways, according to the cons- consent, it gives it any strength, but because this consent is requisite in order that grace should be efficient. So he therefore says that man requires grace in order to do good, but that God never fails to grant this grace to those who ask, ask it with fervor. He also asserts that man has it in his power to answer or not according to the calling of that grace. So there's where you see kind of the distinction with the Calvinist and the Arminian saying, well, there's a, there's, there's a certain amount of grace that's going to allow the person to respond, um, but, but there's a, a certain amount of cooperating and resisting that grace based off of um, how much grace this person is given to be able to. Um, and that would be consistent with the Catholic teaching of, of grace as well. So it would kind of draw the Protestants, Calvinism, and Arminianism to a compromise to say, yeah, you can be a part of Rome and still have your soteriological belief here. So here's the simple edition of it. Uh, that may be a little too complicated, I'll break it down. He believes that God knows all possible outcomes of any combination of possibilities and thereby makes of certain any given outcome that will come to pass within God's foreknowledge, but still keeping the necessity of any given outcome as not necessarily necessary. So um, that is just because something will happen and God knows it, it doesn't mean it's necessary to happen. And this is, uh, this is uh, I can't think of the modal fallacy. The modal fallacy. Just because something is, is uh, certain, it doesn't mean something is absolutely necessary. And a good example of this would be Adam and Eve in the garden. It was certain that Adam and Eve would fall, but it wasn't necessary. That is, they actually had a genuine choice between eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and eating of the tree of life. So it wasn't necessary that they they ate of the bad tree. They necessarily could have eaten of the good tree. Uh, Now, it was certain that they would eat of the bad tree because they did. That's hindsight. Uh, But only God in his foreknowledge can have the answer to that pre- um, the action that they actually took. So that's kind of the complicated version of Molinism. Um, just because something is, is certain doesn't mean it's necessary. And I'll, I'll take it a step further, and then we can move on and, and go from here and, and see what you think. But l- listen to this. God knows all possible outcomes with certainty, but not necessity, but not necessarily certain, making certainty unnecessary and thereby uncertain. So for those of you who are trying to follow this, that's where I just make it absolutely, um, I take it to the next level. I mean, Molina would say, just because it's certain, it's not necessary. Now let me take it to the next logical conclusion. I'll say it again. Now, just because God knows all possible outcomes with certainty, but not necessity, it doesn't necessarily certainly make certainty unnecessary and thereby uncertain. 
So it's like, well, that's that's kind of really it gets back to if you drop Molinism to its logical end, it's like, well, does God really know what's going to happen if it's not necessarily certain? Uh, anyways, I've lost probably 99% of you there, but think about that one for a little bit. Uh, just think about it. It's just kind of crazy. Now, let's put it in a practical application. All right, so William Lane Craig is, is a Molinist. William Lane Craig takes Molinism and he applies it to salvation. So if you take uh, certainty and necessity and apply it to salvation within prevenient grace, because he's also an Arminian, here's how it works. He attempts to apply this to salvation where he says, God knows all people who could possibly get saved in any given number of factors that play into one's ability to believe of their own free will and thereby has chosen when and where a particular soul will be born in order that they will believe the gospel based on his foreknowledge of those who could possibly believe of certainty, but not necessity. That is, God puts you into a time and a place that you would get saved because he knew you would believe. So it's a combination of determinism and free will, like a blend of Calvinism and Arminianism, which is too far for me. Because what he is actually saying is, God decides when and where every individual who's ever been born into this world will be born into this world into what family and when they're born in order that they would have the best chance to of all possibilities of when they could be born and, and where they would be born in the world, that those people who would believe the gospel are born into this family in this location, that they would actually hear it and believe because God sees that they would hear it and believe in this possible given world. So it gets kind of complicated, but that's where it gets a little, it's a little too far-fetched for me. I don't, I don't see that being how God works in salvation. So, anyways, did I make that too complicated? I probably did. Okay. Um, I, I personally believe that it is. I, I think that, um, I think that when you talk about free grace theology and, and proponents of free grace theology, it's not, it's not a monolithic group, just like any group is not monolithic. Um, and I think that when you talk about repentance within free grace theology, it comes down to like anything, the definition that you're going to use. So some, some people would say, you know, repentance is turning from sin. Okay. Well, I reject that definition of repentance. I don't think that's a good definition of repentance within salvation. I think that's a good definition of repentance within sanctification. And we've already seen, we've drawn a distinction between sanctification and justification. So when we talk about uh, repentance within justification, we're talking about a change of one's mind. Now, let me, I'm going to try not to get a hold of myself. I mean, ahead of myself, not a hold. I need to get a hold of myself, but not ahead. So, uh, according to the poor man's dictionary, this is good for me, poor man's dictionary, Hawker, on repentance, he says, repentance, this is an idea, is supposed to be perfectly understood by everyone. But in reality, very few have a true scriptural apprehension of it. Repentance, like faith, is the sole gift of God. The act itself is so impossible to be assumed or taken up by any that it is equally easy to alter the color of the hair or the features of the countenance 
as to change the heart. So Jesus, it is said in Acts 5.31, has exalted a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What therefore Christ gives cannot be the work or merit of man. Uh, there may be, and there often is, a false repentance, which men of no religion may possess, but which is as distinguishable from true repentance as darkness from light when the principle of both are analyzed. False repentance is that which springs up from a sorrow uh, for the consequences, not for the causes of sin. True repentance is that which flows from the consciousness of the sin itself. The man of godly sorrow sorrows for having offended God. The man of worldly sorrow sorrows that his sin hath brought punishment. The one is the effect of fear, the other of love. The repentance for consequence of sin goes no further than as it dreads the punishment. The repentance for the cause of sin becomes the continued gracious sorrow of the heart. These observations may be sufficient to mark the very different features of both and under grace enable anyone to understand the vast distinction. So that's kind of a complicated way to draw the conversation uh, to how most people understand it as uh, two different types of repentance, one being godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. I think that that's not um, as much of a distinction between the categories of repentance as I've already tried to illustrate that there is a difference between uh, repentance and, and a turning of one's mind to Christ, a turning of one's mind and understanding your sin of a godly sorrow of sin as offending God and turning to Christ as the answer of a clean conscience towards God of believing and receiving Christ as your justification versus the, 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 the sanctification side of repentance, which is you sh you're, you're called to good works as a Christian. Those good works don't save you to be a Christian. And uh, that's where free grace theology really, really, really strongly draws the distinction between works in salvation and works from salvation. So um, we know repentance cannot be a turning of, of sin because God repents about 20 times in the Old Testament alone. So if your definition of repentance um, is turning from sin, you've got a real problem uh, if you're going to use that and apply it to how God repents. Because if, if you're saying that God repents and repenting is turning from sin, I mean, what does that imply? I mean, I, I think that it's implying God is a sinner and he's turning, he has a need to turn from sin. So now, yeah, so I think it gets, uh, that's where you've got to be real careful about how you define things. And, uh, you know, that's where some people think that, you know, I can just be a little too nitpicky about stuff like this, but I, I think that you've got to be real fine in your definitions or, or you've got a heretical doctrine that can blend works with, with grace and, I mean, that's kind of a big deal, so, but, um, well, I've got a couple more points here. Uh, we can either stop there and move on or see where you want to go. Okay, uh, so Manser and his Dictionary of Bible Themes um, in definition of God and repentance, like we're just talking about, um, he says, a change in God's plan or intention, often in response to human repentance but without implying any fault or moral imperfection on God's part. He says God's repentance may show his pain and sorrow, as seen in Genesis chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. This is God's change of purpose here, which involves his intention to punish now. You can also see that in 1 Samuel 15, 11 through 35. But God's repentance can also show his compassion. You can see that in John chapter 4, verse 2. 
God's change of purpose here involves his compassion for sinners. His relentance in this and other passage passages may also be translated as repent, as it is in Deuteronomy 32, 36, 2 Samuel 24, 15, and 16, 1 Chronicles 21, 14 through 15, and many, many more passages that we uh, we set up to 20 times, so I w- I'm not going to list them all. But, you know, God may repent also in, respent, in response to human repentance. All right, so you can see that in Jeremiah 18, 8. Now, what does that mean? What, is that, what, what that means is God wants to see a sorrowful and broken and contrite heart. So when a, when a human repents towards God, like we're talking about in salvation, this means a, a person is coming to himself like the prodigal son. They're seeing their sin for what it is, and they're returning to God and turning to God saying, you know what, I've done wrong. You're like David, and, and you're saying, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, I'm a sinner against thee and thee only if I sinned. I had to mute it there for a second. Um, but this is where God changes his mind about that person. So when they change their mind about God and sin, God changes his mind about what he's going to do with them. So now you're, once you were at, at enmity with God, that means you were an enemy of God. You were, you were at a point of, of wrath with God. You were under condemnation of God. And when you turn to Jesus Christ as your own personal savior, God now turns his wrath against you and it was actually now put in place of you with Christ. So that's what God is doing. He's, he's changing his mind about what he's going to do with you now. So that's kind of a big deal, isn't it? God's repented. He's changed his mind about who you were before you accepted Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior and your eternal destiny to now, you know what? God looks at you different. You look at God different. He looks at you different too. It's now a relational thing. You're a son of God. You've been born again. And repentance is part of faith. I would say if you have turned to Christ in faith and trusted him as your own personal savior, you have repented whether you know of it or not. So, so uh, that's what I would say there. Anyways, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Um see this is where the conversation gets a little a little complicated. So my my job is to make it as simple as possible. I know I've not done a, done a good job on that so far. Um but let me try to simplify this. Um, let's let's look at a, f- a few passages. I, I think that it's very very clear that good works are absolutely sure to follow faith. Now that doesn't mean that works are a part of saving faith. Initial what what we would call initial salvation or when you're converted, when you're born again, that point of conversion. 
but but you're saved to good works. It does it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have good works. Now let me give you a real practical example of that. When I was a kid, my grandma led me to the Lord. Um, she we were she was sitting at the kitchen table. I'll, I'll never forget the day. I can remember it was a, a summer it was a summer day. She was watching me and my brother and sisters. And she was sitting at the kitchen table. The sun was coming through the windows. And she was reading her Bible. I'd, I asked her what she was reading. She says, I'm reading Isaiah 53. And we talked about it. And she explains to me, Isaiah 53, how this is a prophecy of Christ on the cross and, and all of this. So so I I turned to the Lord in faith and called on on the, the, the name of the Lord to save me and, and prayed to God like, I need to be saved. I, I Hell was a big part of that because I, I do believe there is a hell. I, I believe that it's a good thing to be afraid of hell. And I, I do believe it's a good thing. Uh, to know that there there is an answer to keep you from going to hell, and that is Jesus Christ. So that would be my conversion story. But but my sanctification part of that has come years and years and years later. I, and and I, and I always tell people, um, in particular, when I became a youth pastor, I had some of my buddies from college. I, I told them I was I was a youth pastor. I was like, can you believe this? They're like, dude. You have got to be kidding me! You're a, a you're a youth pastor. He's like, yeah, man, I'm a youth pastor, and he's like, dude, I didn't even know you were a Christian, you know. And so that's where I'm I'm kind of wanting to to make sure that there's going to be times in your life, and if if we're honest, there there's times in your life where the works aren't there, man. So if if you're looking at your works to decide whether or not you're saved or not, or if someone else is saved or not. It's dangerous ground, but I think that works works should follow. But but then you've got to define what the works are, you know. Um, so let's look at at what the what the Bible says in Ephesians two ten. I'm going to turn turn to it here. I don't have it written down. Uh, but Ephesians two ten says this: For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Now notice that word should there in Ephesians 2.10, and it comes right after the most famous two verses in the whole Bible in describing salvation in verses 8 and 9, which say it's, for, for, uh, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift to God, not of works lest any man should boast. But you're saved to good works, and you should walk in them. But it doesn't mean you're going to. And, and why is that important for the Christian? Why that's important for the Christian is because you're not always going to walk with Christ. You're not always going to walk in good works. And that's where we draw a distinction between fellowship and relationship. You're always going to be a son of God as a Christian. You can never undo your, your new birth. But you can have some real struggles in your fellowship. And if you want to have good fellowship with God, that's where it comes to obedience. The obedience side of, uh, of following Christ, being his disciple, is a completely different conversation of being a child of God. And uh, and I think that's where I would draw the distinction. You can be a disciple of Christ without being a son of God. I was talking about my conversation with John Jonathan Williams earlier. I think I just found the answer. Um, there are a lot of people who think that they're, they're sons of God, that they've been born again because they're looking at their works and following Christ and doing all of these things. But you can, you can be a disciple without being a son. I would say that you can be a son without being a disciple. And there's the distinction. You can be a disciple and a son, 
you can be a disciple and not a son, and you can be a son and not be a disciple, or you can be a son and a disciple. So um, to, to simplify that, that's where the, the, the conversation is drawn to, the relationship of works and salvation. And I think in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, show us that you're saved apart from works. It's grace. It's grace. But works should follow. And that's not of a necessity of following in Christ out of fear as a slave of Christ, as, as him being your Lord and Master, but as Christ being your friend and, and having a relationship with him where you want to serve him out of love. And that's where I think that God looks at your motive for service. Um, when you look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 10, 10, 12, 10 through 13, and it describes the judgment seat of Christ and your works being burned up, and gold, silver, precious stones versus wood, hay, and stubble, uh, the, the eternal things are the things that are going to come out of that fire and be purified. The temporal things, the wood, hay, and stubble, are all temporary things that can burn when they're burned in a fire. And, and when, when we look at the relationship of what's burned, the works of ourselves is the temporary things. The works of eternity, the works of God through faith and love, is the relationship side of, of what you do as a Christian that will be purified in, in, in that fire and come out even better um, with your rewards. Yeah, go ahead. Gosh, man, um, that's a tough question to answer. Um, I, I think that if you're just purely looking at uh, the different soteriological viewpoints from a dictionary point of view, um, in, in my opinion, it's probably the best, the best uh, theology to give you a good, clear answer that, that your motive, um, that that's where your service is, is, is um, conditioned on your motive and your rewards, your rewards for that service, and and everything else, lordship, salvation, um, um, the Arminian salvation side of the the works conversation is is absolutely um, is based off of kind of a fear based service. It's it's like God's your lord, he's your master, he's your you're his slave, you are his servant, you are called to serve, and and it's kind of a bondage thing, man. And, and I think that's where there's a, there's a real distinction of liberty um, versus kind of slaveship. And, and I think we've been freed from that and freed to serve, not, not freed from the bondage of, of the law to freed to the bondage of Christ. And, and gosh, man, I mean, if you can get that concept down, it just, it'll, it'll open your heart to want to serve God. But yeah. Ooh.
Yeah, that's a, I, that can be, that can be, um, I can see that to a certain extent. I think that it's, um, it's true to an extent because you've got to understand God's love to us first in order to express that love to others um, from a biblical perspective. But, but when we talk about good works, I do think that good works will follow, um, but not necessarily in attaining or maintaining your salvation, without a doubt. And I think you can see that in Romans 6, 6.15, where he says, What then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. And then in 8.4, he says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the, the spirit. And um, now the determinist Augustine on works says we do the works, but God, does, God works in us um, the doing of the works. So, so even, even the determinist fatalist side of, of uh, the Calvinist soteriology says you're not doing anything. It's all God doing it through you. Um, and and there's, there's a conversation to be had there about that. But listen to what a, a few people say about the relationship of works and salvation. Antonio um, Guvasa says, heaven will be filled with such as have done good works and hell with such have intended to do them. David O. Mackey says, <laughs> David O. McKay says, true Christianity is love and action, which is what you're talking about there. William Shakespeare says, How far that little candle throws his beam, so shines a good deed in a naughty world. Um, and then John Wesley finally says, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, and all the ways you can, to all the people you can, and all the places you can, as long as you ever can. And uh, and I, I think that's kind of a, a good a good place to draw the relationship of works within salvation with the scripture and, and what other people have had to say about it as well. But Sorry. Um, yeah, I think, um, some would accuse free grace theology of weakening, weakening the gospel by avoiding any call to unbelievers to repent of their sins while citing certain verses like Luke 24, 47, Acts 2, 38, Acts 20, 21, when it talks about repentance. But, but when it talks about justified by faith alone, you're, you're really going to hear the conversation primarily between uh, people who turn to James chapter 2. And uh, where where you think that you're saved by faith alone, right? But the term faith alone only shows up one time in the whole Bible, and it's in James chapter two, where it says, "Faith that is alone saves no one." And uh, you'll hear that. Um, but but that whole conversation is convoluted and directed by a theology that is driven behind statements to say that there is something in addition to faith. That saves, and typically that conversation is is uh, driven by um, people who would say, you know, you've you've got to adhere to either the sacraments or the ordinances in addition to faith to be saved. So, faith plus baptism. If you don't have baptism, water baptism, full immersion, or sprinkling as a child, whatever that, however that conversation goes, depending on what 
what de denomination you're coming from, you've got a real problem there. So, so I think that we, what, what we've got to do is actually look at James chapter 2 and see what he's talking about. Um, so I would say faith, faith is not alone, but faith is alone in salvation when it comes to salvation. So um, that's not to say that nothing but faith is, is, is part of that, because obviously I think that you've got to include the work of Christ. If you don't have the work of Christ and you're just assenting to belief of some intellectual understanding, then no, you don't understand the gospel and, and you don't understand faith. So when we look at faith and the definition of faith, I, I think that Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a pretty good definition. Um, faith is the, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I, I like how my pastor puts it. Um, my pastor says, faith is trusting in the promises of Christ without all the evidence of it, without understanding it all. You don't have to understand the virgin birth, the Trinity. You don't have to understand all of these different things about baptism, all, all these conversations that people say that you have to understand. You just have to have faith. A little bit can save you, just a tiny little bit. And and Jesus himself even likes it to the faith of a mustard seed. So let's look at James chapter 2 real quick. I think, I think this is a discussion that is worthy to be had. Do what? What is? Dude, I think so too. I think we've got to make a distinguishment here. And I don't know where you and I stand in this conversation, if we agree or disagree, but um, maybe we could just talk about it for a second. <clears throat> so in, in chapter 2, verse 20 says, But will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? See you how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. And here's the key here in verse 24. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Now, I did, I kind of did that on purpose, um, because I skipped verses 17 and 18. And I think verses 17 and 18 are kind of the necessity for precluding what you're talking about in those verses. The reason I did that is because most people, when you're trying to talk about faith and works or faith not being alone or faith without works is not good enough to save you, those are the verses you read and you skip verses 17 and 18. So let me read verses 17 and 18 real quick where it says, Even so faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. So I would say the key to understanding this passage is understanding what James is, is talking about. And uh, I, I have no doubt if you look at the historical view of James where he is in, in the biblical times, this is one of the earliest books that's written. And James is the bishop of Jerusalem. Um, he had a, a, a huge part of, of coming to faith and belief in Jesus as his own personal savior. And, and he, he's really battling with first century Judaism and, and conflict with Christianity, where Christianity is saying it's faith and Judaism is saying, okay, you can have your faith, but you got to have circumcision too, right? So James is drawing a distinction here saying, no, it's not, it's not circumcision. That has nothing to do with your salvation. But he's saying faith will produce works just like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says. 
just like Romans chapter 4 says was produced in Abraham, not saying that his works saved him, but saying that faith produced works, which shows that his faith was alive. And that's showing the distinction that Abraham and uh, all of these, these other examples that are given, like Rahab, the harlot, her faith was put into action as apart from um, her works um, contributing to salvation, but showing that her faith was alive and Abraham's faith was alive because of his works. As an example to men who would look at their um, works and try to decide whether or not they were saved. And, and the key is to that statement is in verse 18. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. So you want to know if I'm saved? I want to know if you're saved? Well, let's see if your faith is alive based off of what you're doing. And I think that's kind of where the conversation goes, showing there is a distinction between faith and works for salvation. But if you really want to um, see if someone's faith is alive, they're, they're going to have works, yet those works are separate from their faith and salvation. So anyways, that'd kind of be my take on it. But where would you go with that? Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah, dude, I would I would totally agree with that. And I think that if you look at the timeline of uh, when Abraham was declared righteous um, in, in what's being described in James 2, you see that the event in James 2 is described by him offering up Isaac cannot be uh, cannot be um, congruent or whatever the word is that I'm looking for in, in regard to the, the, um, the Genesis account, because Abraham called out to God in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 13, and he was declared righteous in Genesis chapter 15, but he didn't offer Isaac up until Genesis uh, 22. So he's declared righteous in Genesis 15, and uh, which we would say is being declared, which justification is literally the imputation of God's righteousness to a man as being declared righteous. That's the definition of justification. So when I would agree with Zane Hodges here, um, that there's a distinction between the justification before men and justification before God. And he's describing the justification before men because he's literally in verse 18 saying, you show me your faith by your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. And then he describes the works of Abraham showing this guy was faithful. He was saved because of the works of, um, of him offering Isaac up on the altar. And by the way, he didn't kill Isaac. He offered him. So that's something to really consider when we're talking about the timeline of events because I, I think that James is trying to draw the distinction that he was declared righteous in, in, uh, Genesis, in Genesis 15 as consistent with Romans chapter 4 or else you have a, a huge contradiction between James and Romans, uh, between James and Paul. And, and that's where it gets really problematic and that's where you get into... Uh, uh, a lot of different um, denominations that will show uh, that there is a necessity of, of works and faith in order to merit salvation. And that becomes very problematic because some people will link it to baptism. Some people will link it to uh, the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or uh, that kind of thing. Some people will link it to just literally being a good person and having faith. And um, it, it gets really problematic. Um so, you know, if you can look at the consistency of the Bible and see there is no contradiction, and if you apply the, the timeline of the events in Genesis to what Paul says in Romans 4 to what James says in chapter 2, um, you can see there is a consistency and no contradiction that preserves the justification of faith without works in order to merit salvation. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay.
I see. Yeah, so um, let me let me give you the simple answer. Um, I don't look at my works to, to have assurance of salvation. I don't look at my works. I look at the finished work of Christ as assurance of my salvation. I don't have any hope when it comes to my own works if I'm looking for assurance because I'll never have it. Um, it. The way that I look at the works of Christ is by looking at the promises of Christ. And in 1 John he says... Um, that, that if you have, if he that has the son has life, he that has not the son has not life. It, um, and, and that if you have life, these things are written for you that you may know that you have eternal life. And I, there's a guy that's tuning in right now that um, I had a, a debate with on this particular subject, the, um, whether or not a person can walk away from the faith, lose their salvation, fall from grace, whatever the term is that you want to use. And uh, this conversation came up. But when you're talking about Wayne Grudem's question here, and he ends with ultimately asking, where was it? And he ends with, how do I know that I've truly believed? I think it's a good question. But for me, I I think it's kind of evasive. I think a better way to ask that question to Grudem is is asking, um, would be to ask, not if you've truly believed, but do you understand more about what you believe today than you did this time last year. That is, are you growing spiritually, challenging your faith, and ultimately asking Jesus as as uh, Thomas to help your unbelief? If it, if you're stagnant in your growth, there's going to be doubt. And in fact, even, even as you grow, you're going to have doubts. The, the, the point is to grow, to, to find the answers, to, to search the scriptures, to understand Christ a little bit more. And Paul says, man... Paul says that if you could, uh, his one desire is to know nothing more than Christ and him crucified. And I, I stand with Paul, man. You could spend the rest of your life understanding Christ and him crucified. That is, who is Jesus and what did he do for me? If you can answer those two questions and find answers to those two questions. Sorry. You can spend the rest of your life answering those two questions and, uh, You'll, you'll live a good, fulfilled Christian life and have a lot more than, than a lot of people ever do in their walk with Christ. But in this case, I think in relationship to free grace theology, it's accused of easy believism. That is, so it, it makes salvation too easy. So I think personally salvation is too easy, but yet it can be too complicated. So think about what Jesus said about the faith of that mustard seed that we mentioned earlier. The smallest seed in the world, it's still a seed, not to mention the amazing results of that seed. But the point is, what some would say is not salvation because someone has so little faith, it's so easy, that little thing is just too little. And they, they, they complicate it so much to cause doubt that I think that this is what Jesus is talking about when he gives the examples of, of the seed being drawn away on, on stony ground and thorny ground and and good soil, and all of these different things. It's people pulling that faith away from the person who has just enough to believe. That's not to say that they lose their salvation. It's just to say they lose that unction to continue to grow, to continue to grow. And I think that's where the conversation needs to be driven, is not how do I know that I've truly believed, but do I know what I've believed? Because Paul says, I know in whom I'm, I've, I have believed, and he is able to... Um, what is it? 
that he's able to keep that which he's committed against that day. Um, so it's, it's growing in Christ and understanding more about who he is and what he's done for you that gives me assurance of salvation based off of the promises of God to know Christ and him crucified, and I can spend the rest of my life doing that. And uh, it'll, <laughs> if I can just do that, that'd be a good, a good life for me. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Dude, that's good. Now let's take that a step further. Um, it's not our faith that saves us. It's not, and 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 that's where we 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 draw the conversation of faith and works. If you have, if if you're hoping on your faith to save you, that means that you're looking at something that you're doing to save you. So let's take that a step further. Now, when the Pharisees ask Christ, like, what work can we do to earn salvation, and Jesus' answer is. Well, they say to earn eternal life, that we may inherit eternal life. Jesus' answer to them is, this is the work of God that you believe. And then in, in, in Paul draws on that conversation, and he says, it's, it's the faith of Christ that saves us. So when we place our faith in Christ, what you are actually doing without understanding it is literally trusting in Christ that his faith is what actually saves you. So it's not even your faith that contributes to your salvation. It's his faith that saves you. So if you put your faith in Christ, what you have done is you've literally accepted everything that Christ has done in place for what you could not do yourself, including faith to save. And, and I think that's such a huge... If you can wrap your head around that concept, it's your faith in his faith 
that saves. It's his faith that saves. You're placing your faith in him. And um, it's still not of yourself, so. Yeah. Um, gosh, man, you know what? I, you had sent me, um, <laughs> you had sent me these questions ahead of time. I didn't write it. I, didn't, I skipped this one. I didn't. So, but I just put the definitive verse on there. What was, um, which was, um, let me give you the definitive verse. I think it's pretty, I think that's pretty strong. Let me get back there. It is, um. Uh, where did I put that? Oh, okay. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah, Romans 5.15, which is, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. So, I don't know. I You can come up with a lot, but, um, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, that's good. I like that. Okay. See, now, um, when we're talking about free grace theology is the conversation we've been having today about salvation. I think the conversation about salvation is extremely important. If you have a soteriolo soteriology that combines works with faith, that is extremely dangerous. And if you believe there's any contribution of works, and I would include baptism as a work, I would include uh, any participation of the, the Eucharist in, in, in accordance with faith as a as something in addition to faith in Christ alone, as your salvation, I'd say it's extremely dangerous and you should consider your position there. Um, but but I, at the end of the day, guys, I don't play the game of trying to decide who is and who isn't saved. I, I refuse to get into that conversation. Um, people have asked me, do you think Catholics are saved? I think without a doubt, there are Catholics who are saved. Do you think Mormons are saved? Do you think this and do you... I think if you're going off of the denominational teaching, it's and you you believe that is the path to sal to eternal life, that is that's very that's that's extremely dangerous. I but the reason I, I caveat this conversation with uh, with someone not believing free grace theology as being harmful um, uh, to the gospel or the body of Christ, I I caveat it with the fact that I can't read someone's heart, I can't read someone's mind. Only God can do that. What I can go off of is what someone say, says. If they say that they have to keep the commandments and be faithful and they have to have good works in addition to faith in order to attain eternal life, uh, that's extremely dangerous and it's actually another gospel. Um, and I don't have any problem saying that. If someone says that if, if, if Jesus isn't Lord of your life, then he's not Lord. If he's not Lord of your life in all things, he's not Lord of your life in anything. That's a damnable heresy. 
because that's talking about my walk with Christ, not my place in Christ. And if you're going to say that I'm uh, living in sin, that I, I'm not saved, um, that's that's a damnable heresy because you're looking at your works for salvation. Um, if you want to say that Jesus is Lord, that's 100% true. I agree with that 100%. There's no doubt about it. Um, that's a true statement. If, if, if Jesus isn't Lord, uh, if you don't confess Jesus as Lord, I don't know how you can be a Christian. I don't understand that. I can't wrap my head around it. If you don't believe Jesus Christ is your Lord, I mean, who is he to you? I mean, where does he, where does he rank uh, in the hierarchy of, of, of God and man? You know, um, so I, I, I just, I think you got to find your place as, as man, God's place as God. And understand the relationship of works to salvation. And if anything perverts the relationship of God's grace with your works to merit eternal life, that's a damnable heresy and really seriously needs to be examined. So, Um, yeah, so I thought about this, and I figured I'd answer it this way. Uh, of course, me as a man, I could be wrong. Um, but if I'm wrong, and I stand before God, here's what I'm going to tell him. I said, I'd rather meet Jesus face to face and say, you know what, Jesus, you're my friend. We've walked together. We've talked together. We've been through good times and bad times and hard times and easy times throughout this life. And if I got this wrong, I got it wrong because that's what you told me in the Bible. <laughs> if it's wrong, then the doctrine of salvation is a lot wider and it has a lot more wines in it than I thought it was. I thought that it was straight. I thought it was narrow and I thought it was by your work and your work alone, God. And I thought it was free and I couldn't contribute anything to it. So if I was wrong and there's people up there who got there on their own merit, um, then you know what, I'll admit I'm wrong to God and I misinterpreted what the Bible said. But from what I can tell, that's what the Bible says, man. Um, so, yeah, of course I could be wrong. But if I'm wrong, I won't find out until I get there. So, Dude, Russ, anytime. I really appreciate you having me on. And uh, like I told you before, some of these guys you're having on your show, uh, I don't know why you asked me because I'm I don't I I don't compare to some of those guys you're having on there. But I, I'm really thankful, appreciative that you would have me on. And uh, what better of a topic to discuss than than uh, soteriology? I love it, man. So thank you. You too. God bless.